Before we begin, we have uh, one more announcement to make. We thank everybody who is a covenant member of First Family Church. We thank you for responding to our email regarding the proposal for a new project that we are going to begin shortly. We did get the votes back that we needed to establish a quorum. And uh, very, very overwhelmingly, the, the vote was in the positive. And so we are going to uh, soon begin construction on our bathrooms. Uh, I think it's going to go bathrooms, kitchen, hallway. And then we're also going to uh, be trying to build a new walkway for our friends at Somerset uh, who uh, need a safer pathway up to our church so they can participate in worship services without the danger of going up and down the steep hill that cars are often going up and down of. So thank you for responding to us. We, uh, as a group of elders, are meeting together on Monday night to discuss lots of things. One of those will be our next steps in getting that project going. Appreciate everybody who's had feedback and input on that. And uh, I pray that we will be able to do it efficiently and we'll improve the buildings that we have. God has blessed us with this place. I know that uh, we've been talking a little bit as elders lately about how normally uh, we wish that our building is more prominently visible from the street that we might get more visitors walking in. Some people in our neighborhood have lived here for tens of years and don't even know there's a church back here because we have a hill blocking us on that side. We've got the houses on this side. But it has actually been kind of nice to be back here and to not have too much uh, interference and be able to worship our God according to our convictions. Uh, But we are very, very grateful for this place and for this property, and we want to do a good job of keeping it up. So we are going to begin that project here uh, very shortly. I want you to turn with me today to Matthew chapter 6 in the New Testament. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians lately, and last week at the end of chapter 1, Paul humbled the church in a a way by reminding them that God uses weak and flawed creatures like us so that he might shame those who the world might call wise or powerful. We are not to boast in ourselves, brothers and sisters, We are to boast in Christ Jesus, for it is His work that redeems us out of our ignorance and helps us to be valuable to the Lord God and to His mission. Amen? So today I want to take a quick break from the book of 1 Corinthians because I want to address a topic that I think has been on a lot of our hearts, this topic of fear and how fear makes its way into the hearts of believers. This year has has brought with it an unrelenting wave of stressful, unforeseen challenges, hasn't it? I don't remember ever thinking of a year as my enemy, but that's how we've come to think of 2020. It's almost like 2020 is this time monster that just keeps beating us up over and over again. It's not just 12 months on a calendar. It's a drawn-out series of calamities that have truly put the faith of believers to the test. And just considering really quickly what we've had to deal with, and I know you're aware of these things, we've had to deal with a worldwide pandemic, the fear of hospitalization, the fear for some of death, and the isolation that comes with the different uh, measures that are being taken to try to quell the swell of this virus. We've had to deal with a serious financial recession. People don't know how they're going to make it financially, and, and many people are really struggling right now to pay their bills and to simply keep the lights on at their homes. We've had to deal with an ongoing limitation of our freedom. We've not been able to enjoy the the blessings of being Americans like we normally would. We haven't been able to spend as much time together, enjoying meals together, going in and out of each other's houses. 
Racial tensions has divided our country, has led to intense judgment from one camp to another. It has led to rioting in areas and even anarchy in cities that has been going and going and going for weeks. The political tensions of the upcoming elections have divided our nation even further. And the latest edition, of course, if that wasn't all enough, are a series of natural disasters which present all new causes of, of distress and hardship in people's lives as fires are raging throughout the West Coast and as we see several tropical storms threatening to damage and doing great damage to the Gulf Coast and to the East Coast of America. So after months of stress and strain, many are beginning to grow weary and fearful about how this is all going to turn out. As serious as all of those things are, is not God still in control of what he has made? Is not God still all-powerful over his creation? Is he still fully capable of bringing about his will in this universe? The answer to all those questions is yes, yes, and yes. We know that. We know it intellectually. So where does this fear come from that I know often affects the hearts of even faithful, faithful believers? Why is there so much dread in the hearts of believers in this season? So we're going to look to chapter 6 of Matthew. I'm going to focus in on two verses, though. We will address some of the, the previous content. I'll be reading for you to start here, verses 33 and 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Would you bow with me as we pray? God, prepare us this morning. We know that you are omniscient, that there is nothing hidden from your sight. Prevent us from thinking too highly of ourselves today, from mistakenly believing that we too are omniscient, that we have it all figured out. Lord, we are far from it. We must depend on you if we are to have any sense of understanding or clarity in this conflict that has come upon us, Lord God. And so we ask that by your perfect word, which has guided your saints through far worse than what we're experiencing now, your word, which has been an anchor and a beacon of light, that has helped your believers to avoid the, the deadly rocks of the shore, God, please guide us home through this great word. Help us to find our faith resting upon you, the solid foundation, the rock that is not ever moved. We praise you, Lord God, and we trust that you will reveal yourself to our minds, which sometimes grow numb, which sometimes become overwhelmed, Lord God. So open our eyes and help us to rejoice in the great light of your word. Let us not waste any opportunity, Lord God, to grow in you, even if those opportunities have to come by great hardship. May our discipleship increase today as our love for you increases. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, which we looked at briefly last week, which declares to us that those who are blessed of God are not the ones that you might think are blessed of God. After the Beatitudes, 
Verse 13 begins a section where these unlikely followers of Jesus will serve a representative purpose where they are called salt and light to God, where they, by God's direction and guidance, will be a blessing to the dark world that they live in. And in order for that to be possible, verse 17 starts a section in which we see Christ as the fulfillment of the law. He accomplishes what we cannot. His perfection and His righteousness imputed to us is what will make us be holy in the world that we live in. And then starting in verse 21, in light of Jesus fulfilling that law, His followers are to pursue the heart of the law. So it is is not enough to just think that murder is wrong, but to consider the depths of where murder comes from. Jesus' followers are to avoid hatred. We are to not only avoid adultery, but the lust that leads to adultery. Not only are we to seek justice, but we are also to go the extra mile and seek forgiveness, that we are to bless our enemies even as they curse us. And then next in chapter 6, Jesus teaches his people how to give, and pray and fast. He is teaching them how to stay connected to Him through spiritual discipline. Our ability to honor the law is contingent on our willingness to abide in Christ and in His holiness. And then in verse 19, Jesus begins a lengthy section where He teaches His disciples what they should treasure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And when he's speaking about treasures there, he's not just thinking about gold, although some people mistakenly think that gold and wealth and riches are the greatest treasure, the highest thing to seek after. But he's basically saying, this is what you should love, and it's different than what the heart of man naturally loves. It is different from what the heart of man naturally yearns for and desires. In the verses that follow, Jesus builds a framework that will help us understand what we are to value the things that we are to long for and treasure in our hearts because the things that we naturally long for are often wrong. Right in line with what we've been learning in 1 Corinthians 1, man's wisdom, what man thinks is right and good from his earthly perspective is often foolishness compared to the perfect plan and wisdom of God. And so it should be no surprise that in our natural sinful state, before we trust in Jesus, we tend to treasure and love the wrong things for the wrong reasons. We care about things that are fleeting. We put emphasis and value on things that really mean nothing to the Lord God. And in doing so, our energy and our attention and our focus is not being poured into the things that really matter, but is being poured into things that don't. Now, understand... As part of this Sermon on the Mount, we're not looking at the whole thing today. I want us to focus on these two verses. But know that the Lord knows that we have needs. Humans are needy creatures. Unlike God who is perfectly content and who has enough of everything and is lacking in nothing, we are not self-sufficient. We need help. We need support. We seek a greater wisdom than our own because we lack understanding. What worldly things are specifically important to our well-being. In verses 25 through 32, Jesus explains that. He shows that he knows the heart of man and he knows what we think we need. He says what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, those are important to a degree. God knows you need them and as a good father, he will supply your needs in those areas. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not ignoring those things. God is a good father and when his child asks for bread, he does not give him a snake, does he? 
He gives him what he needs. But should we allow those temporal needs to become the treasure of our heart? Should they be preeminent priority in our lives? Understand this. Fear grows when the things that we believe we need are threatened. That is when the fear grows in us. When the things that we think we need are threatened, then we begin to become anxious. We begin to shake and tremble. We begin to worry. That's why we fear powerful things. If I was walking down the street and a chihuahua came up and barked at me, I would not grab my child up and run. I would laugh at that little dog. I would probably bark back because that's fun to do. But if a Doberman ran up and was growling at me, you better believe I'm going to climb the nearest tree that I see. And I hope my kids can climb trees too. <laughs> they can, thankfully. That's why we fear powerful things, because powerful things have the power to take from us what we have and that we think we need. That's why we fear change, isn't it? Change is bigger than me. Often there are mechanisms far greater than I can control. And so when life begins to change, I begin to become worried. Is it going to change the way I want it to? And am I going to be able to guide this change in a way that I can preserve what I treasure in my heart? That's why we, fa uh, we fear failure. I'm always worried that I'm going to do worse than I think I need to do because I don't want to lose the things that I have worked hard for. That's why we fear loss, accident, and theft, and sickness. We fear these things because they threaten what we love and what we treasure. And so from a worldly perspective, here's a possible solution to that worry and that anxiety. Let's just remove the threat, right? Let's identify the threat and neutralize it or remove it. Overcome the challenge so you don't have to be afraid. That's the way of secular humanism. Provide some kind of insurance or security for yourself so that you don't have to worry. Except often you can't do those things. You are a limited human being. And so try as you may, put all of your energy and attention into it. It's not possible for you to remove every variable that could possibly threaten what you treasure. You might never smoke, never drink alcohol. You might eat, eat organic, even though it's ridiculously expensive. You might exercise all the time and still get cancer one day. You don't have total control over that as much effort and energy as you put into trying to preserve this life that is precious to you, you don't have the script written out. You might never waste your money. You might be so frugal. You might be a wise steward of everything that God has given to you, and that doesn't prevent you from having an unforeseen accident that makes you go into huge debt to pay off your medical bills. You don't have control. You might raise up your kids in the Lord and pour every spiritual blessing that's been poured into you into them. You might pray faithfully for them every single day. The word might be the very bread that you feed them on a regular basis. And then you might watch in pain as they grow into adults and disregard heavenly things entirely. Friends, we, we don't have control over these things. And so you think maybe there's an alternate solution. Maybe you ask yourself, do I truly need the thing that is being threatened? How important is this thing that I think I need so badly? 
Christian, as you trust the Lord more and more, you may discover that you need far different things than you thought you needed before Christ became the king of your life. Much of our fear is a direct product of misplaced hope. The more our treasure is here on earth, the more we will be afraid of losing that treasure. For the earth and everything that is in it is passing away. We live in a place where death reigns thanks to our sin. And because of that, anything that you might cherish that is here in the earthly realm is impacted by the curse of sin. There is a dying that is perpetually going on. So we can, in a sense, guard ourselves against fear by refusing to count as treasure the fickle things that can be so easily taken from us in the first place. But there is an even greater solution. We can place our hope in a treasure which is far too great to ever be vulnerable. The passage we are primarily focused on today points out the error of founding your hope and your security on the wrong things, on the product rather than on the producer, on the things that God has made rather than on the God of all creation. Verse 33 again, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And the Greek word for first here is proton. Having the place of first importance, that which is primary, the kingdom of God and his righteousness should be proton for us. Our battle against fear and anxiety needs to take a two-prong attack. We need to not put too much hope in vulnerable passing treasures, some of which we might be mistakenly prioritizing right now today. And then secondly, instead of, instead of doing that, instead of putting our hope and our, our, our love into the things that can pass away so easily, transfer your hope to a greater treasure, to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These are the things that we should seek after. And when you count these things as your treasure, you are guarding yourself from fear because these things become ours by the work of God and they remain so by his steady hand. At times, life is going to give us some legitimate reasons to be afraid. Okay, so this morning is not a, a lesson that should make you from this day forward feel extremely guilty if you ever feel afraid because you are a human being and you live in a fallen world. There will be days when your concerns will be heightened. Though we are examining today how a believer might guard his heart from fear, there isn't really a way to avoid the kinds of circumstances that tend to produce fear in the heart and in the mind of man. In the book of John, as Jesus' earthly ministry is winding down, it's drawing to that great apex conclusion, he tells his disciples the following words to both prepare and encourage them. This is found in John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, God's desire, according to this passage, is that the disciples that he has called to himself have peace, but not just generic peace, a specific kind of peace, peace in him. Note that there are two important truths that Jesus lays out here concerning that peace in verse 33. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. 
you will have fear. You will have anxiety because difficult things will come to pass. In so much as the world is a fallen place, stricken by sin, we will have to deal with the consequences of that sin. We cannot solve the fear problem by eliminating every circumstance that might threaten the things that we need. The CDC can't eliminate it. Our government can't eliminate it, no matter who is the president. As much as you love your church, we cannot eliminate all of your tribulation and trouble. The Apostle Peter, who received that wisdom firsthand from Jesus, he was among the twelve as Jesus told them that he wanted them to have peace and that in the world they would have tribulation. He paid attention because later on in his letter to the churches in Asia Minor, 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So part of our preparedness this morning is, is not to fool ourselves into thinking that we'll never fear again, but to prepare ourselves for when that fear begins to well up in us. What do we do with it? How do we counter it? We should be prepared for that fear. It is by these trials and difficult circumstances that God has chosen to teach us our need for Him. And by seeing how vulnerable and passing the thrills of temporal life can be, we see in contrast how incredibly valuable God's abiding love for us most certainly is. Tribulation is a necessary and useful component of the temporary phase of life we experience here on earth. God uses it and it glorifies Him. So in the world you will have tribulation, but a second great truth in John 16, is this. Our peace is found in the undisputable fact that Jesus has overcome the world. Not that we have escaped the world, but that Jesus has overcome every struggle that is present here. He has dominion over it. He has the power to carry us through the solution. To all of this, is, all of this what we struggle with, all the, the fear and the anxiety and the hurt is not out of hand of this God. Though the trials will happen, the sovereignty of God remains steadfast through each hardship. And that is why the psalmist says in Psalm 56, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? How can we sing that unless Christ has overcome the world? Unless our God is sovereign on the throne and in charge. Note that that psalm doesn't say, if I am afraid. It doesn't say, so I won't be afraid. It says, but when I am afraid. Christian, you're going to be afraid. Amen. It's going to be hard. It has been. You felt it. Since God is unshaking and trustworthy, the only wise course of action for us when we experience these inevitable fears of life is to put our trust in Him and find shelter in His sovereignty and in His power. When I remember that there is nothing that happens apart from God's perfect will, these fears that grip me will begin to fade away because I trust that I am being preserved and kept by the mighty hand of God who has overcome. So we will, without a doubt, be afraid at times. In fact, as created beings, we are not omniscient. We don't know all things. So fear is in many ways a blessing to us. Fear preserves me against unnecessary risks. I remember I was on a backpacking trip with a bunch of the youth one time, and we were at a section where there was these large towers of rock, 
and I just love climbing stuff. That's just fun for me. I, I think I'm part billy goat. And I remember standing on the edge of one of those rocks, and there was about eight feet between this rock and the next rock and about a 30-foot drop down. And something in me said, you could make that jump. You could do it. Just, just get a little run. You could make it to that next rock. And then God graciously made my heart afraid. <laughs> God gave me an image of my leg bending backwards and all of the youth that I was there to take care of not having a leader to get them out that knew the way, right? And I stopped and I thought, it would be very foolish for me to do this thing. Fear can be your friend at times. It preserves you against unnecessary risks. It makes you a good steward of the good things God has given. God designed us with certain self-preservation instincts. And to be completely fearless would cause us to run headlong into dangers that may cause us useless harm and hinder our ability to worship and serve the Lord in these temporary bodies. Fear helps me appreciate the shelter that is provided for me in Christ. Every difficulty of this world reminds me that there is grace and peace in God. So every difficulty in life teaches me how treasure from above is so much better in every conceivable way than the treasures of the earth. My suffering here reminds me how foolish sin and rebellion is. It fortifies me to continue in my faith in God, for being near to Him is greater than anything else this world has to offer. I thank fear for that. Fear makes me have a more realistic, less inflated view of myself. I fear because I am weak. I fear because I don't have perfect understanding. I fear because I cannot play as though I have the strength to endure apart from Jesus Christ. So when I have to contend with fear, God is in a sense buffeting the pride within me that causes me so much grief and can interfere with my right relationship with God. Thank you, Lord, for fear like that. So fear is an unavoidable component to life. We need to prepare for it because as long as we dwell here on earth, we will have to contend with it. But fear, especially when there isn't a reasonable justification for it, can also be a crippling curse to us. My weakness extends beyond my ability. My weakness as a human being also impacts the faith that I have in God. I don't always remember that God is sovereign, though He perpetually is. I don't always have the presence of mind to see how clearly every circumstance is being used for His glory and for my good. And in those times when I am not vigilant, when I can't see the purpose behind it, in those times when God's sovereignty is not on my mind, my suffering can lead to a fear that obscures my vision of God and brings discomfort to my heart, discouraging me. God knows that too. He knows what kind of damage unchecked fear can do to my ability to trust Him. And so He has acted against that fear. Do you know what the most frequent command given in Scripture is? The one most often given to God's people? It isn't don't lie. It isn't go to church. It isn't even love your neighbor. The most frequent command given in the Bible is do not be afraid. Some form of do not fear, have not fear, do not be afraid. If we are in right relationship with the Lord God, 
We haven't got reason to fear anything but our God. And even that fear is tempered by the knowledge that His powerful, untamable love is for us. Do not be afraid. It is not the most important command given, but it is very frequent. We know that the most important command is what? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Those are more important commands. But God, knowing the weakness of our hearts and our tendency to shift back into anxiety, has frequently given us this command to turn our eyes back to the one that we need to learn to trust in. The command, do not fear. And I don't want you to miss this part, church is only really appropriate when it is linked to the qualifying phrase, for I am with you. When God says, do not fear, he almost invariably shows the people that he is encouraging to be courageous, that their courage is only viable because he has chosen to be alongside them. And so in Joshua 1.9, you remember this Dramatic scene at the beginning of that book where the people of God who have wandered for so many years, they've been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They've been given great and exceeding promises. Their lack of faith has delayed the manifestation of those promises, but now is the time. Moses has just passed away, and Joshua, his protege, is about to bring them into the Holy Land. And we remember the words of Joshua. We often, they often come to our mind from Sunday school lessons and personal devotions. Be strong and very courageous, but have you noticed this? Chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Where is the courage founded? It is founded in the proximity of God to His covenant people. Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham was worried about what was going to become of his life. And God said, don't worry, I am here and my presence is protecting you. Genesis 46, 3 through 4. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God wanted his people to experience great blessing. But the greatest blessing of all was not a parcel of land. It was the presence of God with the people as they went to that parcel of land. I will be with you where I go. In Luke 1.30, as a young teenage Jewish woman is trembling before the angel of God, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. If God has shown favor on us, then the fears that can paralyze us can melt away. They can be as nothing because nothing stands before the might and power of God. And so if God is with us in the sense that he brought us near to him, then we have nothing to fear. But there's a flip side of that coin and it is a sobering reality. If you are not in Jesus Christ, God is not with you. And you don't have a reason to be fearless. And that is why as God's people, we preach the gospel again and again and again. That's why to the people that we love, we don't want to have just regular conversations about the world without talking about Christ. Because we don't want fear to be the slave master of those we love. But if you are not in Christ, what 
What cause do you have for courage? Whatever confidence you can have if you are not in Christ is based on your waning and waxing power. It's based on worldly constructs that cannot withstand the test of time. It is based on that which is absolutely unreliable. So the fearlessness that we are encouraging you to have this morning, it is all contingent on you coming to the Lord humbly with a broken heart saying, God, I have sinned against you. There is nothing I could do in a religious sense or otherwise to undo my offense to your kingdom and to your person. But I have seen through your gospel that Jesus Christ died for his people and I want to trust in him. I want to be yours, God. If you have not surrendered your heart to this mighty Lord who rules all things, then I can't help you very much this morning other than to point you towards this wonderful light that has become to his people surety and confidence and rest and peace. That is why we seek the kingdom of God first, proto, and we seek his righteousness. You can't have this confidence and courage without first being brought near to God. And the nearer God draws you to himself, the more deeply you will experience his assurance. Now remember how we spoke about where fear comes from. We said that it comes when we cannot control what will happen to the things we believe we need, right? And we have since seen very clearly in Scripture that to draw near to God through Jesus is to experience the shelter of His power. But do we control God? Is He under our control or our power? Absolutely not. The source of our confidence is a being so great that we could never hope to control Him. And so there should always be a sense of reverent awe and, yes, fear regarding this amazing God. The very God who conquers our fear is a God who deserves our reverent fear. Let me explain this a little further. In our, in our time of praising Him today, as we sing out with voices raised to this God that we love and that we respect and honor, we sung probably the most recognizable and beloved hymn in the English language today. We sang Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is a hymn that was written by Anglican John Newton. It's published in 1779. John had been a world-class sinner before his conversion. If you know anything about John Newton, uh, he grew up in a home where his mother wanted him to be a believer, hoped that he would go into the ministry, but she died when he was six. And his dad was very caught up in his business, and so John was often neglected. He was bounced from home to home, and he grew up very bitter. And so he became very enraged towards the world around him. He began to work on slaving ships as a young man that brought captured slaves from the northern coast of Africa up into England to be sold. And he had the foul mouth of a sailor. This man was wretched in speech, so much so that there are stories of him being stuck in, in the, uh, the lower portions of the ship by the captain because he was so fiery with the way that he would criticize his ship captains that they would lock him up. And he almost died of starvation a couple of times because nobody wanted to hear the fire that came out of his mouth. He was a foul man. He was fond, especially, of mocking Christians. And he loved to try to destroy their faith in God. He thought it was funny that they believed in this fairy tale being. But midway through John's life, God, by his sovereign power, opened this man's eyes and saved John Newton. 
And John began to use his sharp tongue in more holy ways. He withdrew from the slave trade. He began to study theology. and He began to write hymns for the Lord God. Much of the hymn is believed to be autobiographical of John's own life, that he sees in himself the one that was too wretched to love, the one that was too blind to ever see. And so this hymn, in some ways, is personal appreciation from John Newton for a God who would love a man who was so unlovable. Many of us can relate to that, though, knowing our own sin. And there's a particular line of the song that I want us to think a little more carefully about this morning. The second verse begins with these words. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Now that line may come across confusing if we don't think about it carefully. Isn't grace God's unmerited favor, his his gift that he gives to the undeserving? How would God being good to us when we don't deserve it, how would that cause us to fear? Because that grace comes to us solely according to God's goodwill and pleasure. John began to fear the Lord because his eyes were opened to the reality that nothing John could ever do would be able to undo his sin. His eyes opened to the fact that he had no power over this God that he so freely had been mocking. And he understood that it was only God's goodwill that that was causing him to see his need for salvation. So much like Isaiah, who is brought before the throne room of God and instantly begins terrified of his own sin and that it is cause for his destruction, John is suddenly very afraid of the God that he used to openly mock. He is in awe of the God that he used to try to convince people to abandon. The fact that salvation could only come by the graceful decision of a God that John could not control That fact and that reality terrified his heart. And even that terror was a gift of God. I don't know how many people in my life right now stand mockingly before God and don't fear him. And I just wish that God would help them to fear. Because if they cannot fear the Lord God, they will never be a child of God. But from the dark heart of man, fear will not spring until that day of judgment. It is the very same reality that we can only be saved by the grace of God that relieved John's fears. As the scales of deception and ignorance began to fall from his blind eyes and he began to understand that God's unmerited grace was now resting upon him, he began to trust this God that he could not control. And his fears began to fade away. So we see the meaning of this verse then. It is grace that taught my heart to fear. And then that same grace, my fears relieved. The saving grace of God, the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, reorders our attitude toward Him. Rather than hate His goodness, we begin to respect and appreciate it. Rather than scorning His perfection, we begin to respect and fear it. But on the other side of that same token, the grace of God which saves us not only washes our sin away, it also makes us His. It causes us to belong to his family. We are now a people for the Lord God. The God that we have come to fear and respect is now our loving father who has adopted us into his home graciously and has given us his name and has blessed us with promises to share in the inheritance of Christ. He loves us with a perfect love and so we fear him. But his perfect love casts 
out our fear for lesser things because we know the great and mighty wrath of God which will justly be poured out on all sinners will not be poured out on the elect for our punishments already been poured out on his son Jesus Christ. So friends, the fear of God is good. It is good for us. It's in Acts 9, 31. It says, Then the churches throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Those two things are not strangers. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Have you been just wrought with fear lately? Think about the kind of fear you're giving to God. If your fear was for the Lord God and your confidence in his mighty power, don't you think that the fears you have of the circumstances of life would seem small in comparison? 2 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Philippians 2.12-13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more so in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Don't take that verse wrong. Don't make it think that your fear and trembling is, will God love me? That's not the fear and trembling. The fear and trembling is, God loves me and has made me his. Work out your salvation with that Amazing truth resting upon your heart. There is a chance that if you are a believer stricken with fear today, perhaps that is in part because you have not been worshiping a God who is worthy of fear. And there's a sad reality that we are in a day and an age, and in particularly we live in a country where many people in their very desire to control their treasures have rejected the true notion of God and have fabricated for themselves a lesser image of God, a God who is there for their blessing but has no authority over them, a God who can help them but will never demand anything of them, a God who is a blesser but is not a king. And this God is very popular in the land today. And many have put their hope and trust in that weakened God. And it makes them feel like they can have the blessings of God, but not have to deal with the inconvenience of God's control in their life. And it is backfiring on them today. Because now they need a God who is powerful. They need a God who is sovereign and mighty and who will not be shaken by the waves of the world and its circumstances. And they don't know that God. Because they've made a lesser God. They've made a little G God to worship. And so friends, if you have been swept away with some of that current and you have been afraid to let God be sovereign in your life, then realize that your defense against fear and anxiety is that God who is greater than you. Embrace the God of Scripture, the God of truth, the God who is not like a man and doesn't think like a man, the God who came and became flesh for us but did not forsake his godliness in doing so, a man who conquered sin and will conquer his people in a loving way so that we might not be destroyed forever in sin. Love this grand God, this God of true worship. Don't embrace this domesticated God who only serves your little kingdom. Reject that notion 
and open your eyes to the God who reveals himself to us through his word. God is great and greatly to be praised, so fear him, friends. Respect him and confide in him when you are weak and the demands of your life exceed your abilities. Take rest in knowing that the God that you love, the God who took on flesh to fulfill the laws that you broke, the God whose flesh was torn so that you might be scar-free, the God who was willing to suffer the indignity of the cross, take rest in knowing that God, that God is the God who conquered the grave. He has overcome your worst enemy and taken away the sting of death and hell if you are his. If you belong to that God, you have nothing to fear, friends. For the mightiest of all beings has you right in his hands. It is for that reason that when you treasure Christ above all other things, when he is proto to you, and the thing that you can't bear to lose is the one unlosable thing if it has been given to you by Christ, that you can heed what Jesus says in verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We do not have to be overcome, friends. God's people do not have to walk through life as if we are constantly in the threat of defeat because the victory has already been secured in Christ. When our hope is misplaced in the corruptible trinkets of the world, how can we not fear? Do not place your hopes on temporary things that you can have tomorrow free of terror and anxiety. When we trust in the Lord God, tomorrow is secure. It is not a maybe, it is a yes and amen. So if the lingering possibility of being infected by the coronavirus has caused you to dwell in fear, friends, understand that as a follower of Jesus, your earthly body is not really your treasure. It is a gift of God. It is to be respected and treated well, but it is not the most important thing to you. Your body cannot be proto. If you are diligent about your personal protection equipment, and if you isolate yourself from everyone, and you barely ever go out of the house, you might very well avoid getting sick. But if you are fearing COVID more than you're fearing God, what have you accomplished? You've accomplished idolatry. You have misplaced the fears of this world, and you are more intent and more focused on them than you are on the God of the universe. Idolatry of your health and your body is a dangerous thing. So instead, place your trust in the Lord God. Be responsible about your health. But don't let the fears of the world and their terror over losing the health that we will eventually lose anyway keep you from maintaining a confidence in the God of all creation. If you've been terrified about your job situation, brothers, talk to us. We want to have compassion with you. We want to help you however we can. Perhaps you've been laid off or the threat of downsizing is looming over your head at your business. You've heard murmurs and rumors. Remember that God knows you have needs. He understands what is essential for you to survive. And remember also that he has every resource at his disposal. So let the body of Christ come around you. Trust that God will love you through this, brothers and sisters. But don't let fear plant seeds of doubt in your heart. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage right now. It is sometimes a struggle. Keep struggling 
Seek reconciliation. Seek healing. Desire to love your wife as Christ loves his church. Desire to honor your husband as Sarah honored Abraham. But remember that if you count Christ as your Savior, then your proto-hope is always in something more secure than your marriage. Even if two believers serve God together for decades, remember that marriage is not an eternal covenant. So our hope for true happiness is misplaced if our hope for true happiness is contingent on our marriage or the state of any of our earthly relationships. A right fear of God that leads to a fearlessness of all else is a central driving theme in the Sermon on the Mountains. And, and we see that in the way that Jesus wraps up the message. I'm going to just read this for you from chapter 7 of Matthew. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Friends, misplaced hopes set us up for great fear and anxiety. But if we cast our cares upon the one who truly cares for us, we have nothing to fear. Where are you building your house, friends? Is Jesus Christ the cornerstone of your life? Does your fear of him cast out all other fears? Please bow with me as we conclude in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, we are but weak and limited vessels Our wisdom is so frail. It needs to change so greatly. It is nothing compared to your omniscience. God, we come with weak muscles. We come with weak backbones. We come not knowing what will happen tomorrow. But Lord, we don't have to be a weak people if we have a mighty God. And so we thank you for being sovereign over us and for drawing us into this beautiful relationship that we know we could never afford. Lord, these are innumerable gifts that have been lavished upon us, gifts that we we don't deserve, but we thank you for letting us enjoy them. And I pray, God, that the eternal things that you have gifted to us will always rise above the temporal things that may fade or be taken away. Let these circumstances that we are in right now spur us on not to fear, but to compassion and to care for those who are hurting. Help us to give to those who have no confidence in Christ a picture of the gospel, Lord, so that your Holy Spirit might awaken them and bring them to a greater surety. And Father, when we are weak and afraid and we fail to be confident, remind us that it is not our faith that saves us. It is your grace. And so thank you, God, for making us your own. You will carry us even through these times when we are weak. May you be glorified in your victory. May we rejoice in the treasures that are stored up for us in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.